So, John ends this letter with three certainties, which we know. And the implication of this last sentence is that these certainties, or at least this is the way I'm going to read it, that these certainties stand in contrast to idolatry. This last sentence kind of, if you take it in the wrong way, may throw a wrench in the works. But I don't think it does, and I'm going to try to say why I don't think it does. That is, it might seem, oh, John's talking about idolatry now. He never mentioned idolatry in the whole letter. So, I think you have to go back and say what role idolatry played in Judaism, in which, within Judaism, idolatry was the marker between Jews and pagans. If you practiced idolatry, that was the clear sign and that you were not a, a, a Jew and that you were, you know. And, of course, the, as we all know, just saying this in the way that I'm saying it, is already problematic, and that's where I'm taking this, is because the Jews never seem to make a complete split from idolatry, uh, at least in the period leading up to the intertestamental period. But the Jewish idea of salvation was basically that if you keep yourselves from idols, you keep the law, you keep your Jewish identity, which is the same thing, that's salvation. This was what constituted Jewish identity. Thus, to keep yourself from idols was only possible as a Jew. Now, I hope everybody heard what I just said, because it's actually a fairly simplistic notion of salvation, right? That's not the New Testament idea of salvation. And so what I'm going to claim is that as the very idea of salvation changes up, the function or role or reference to idolatry then is also going to be changed up. Uh, And this, you know, in the New Testament, maybe Paul made it clear the, the concept of pagan idolatry, you know, this is probably Paul's idea before he was a Christian of how to be saved. Um, but when he becomes a Christian, he realizes that's not an adequate diagnosis of the human predicament. So Paul has basically described the Jewish problem. You know, this is Romans, this is Gentiles. The, the Jewish problem and the Gentile problem, once you understand the life, death, and resurrection of Christ is the same problem. Well, that's not something that Paul would have thought of, you know, unless he was rereading everything. He's rereading the whole Bible. And that's what we're getting in Romans and Galatians. That is, did the Jews even have a concept of the fall of man with the story of Adam. Probably not in the way that Paul is going to re-narrate that story in light of Christ. The Jews had a, you know, a kind of notion that uh, salvation was something that was readily available to them in and through ethnic Judaism. And John, I think, I'm going to claim is tapping into a similar understanding. Uh, and so to understand how idolatry stands in contrast you know, to his three summarizing points, I think we have to understand the diagnosis of sin after Christ. 
And that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that when John refers to idolatry here at the end, he's using this as a marker, like Paul and others are going to use it, uh, that is just a reference to, you know, when John is talking about the world is evil, that those outside of Christ are in the uh, under the influence of the evil one. And a way, uh, a quick marker of, of referencing this is idolatry. Um, so the Jewish identity of sin and evil, they certainly had that idea, but it was fairly uncomplicated. Idolatry and all that goes with it is sin. So these nations and and so John has spent a letter describing sin, the devil, the Antichrist, but he's denied it as denying that Jesus came in the flesh and advocating, you know, these guys are advocating something that I think, you know, if you if it's a kind of proto Gnosticism, it may be a kind of proto Gnosticism mixed with Judaism. We don't, really don't know what it was. But the idea we've talked about as we went through John, the focus on the eyes, on seeing, of course, that's very, very much attached to an idolatrous understanding. The separation of Jesus from the Christ. They have no trouble believing in those two personages. It's just that they can't believe they're the same person. And the, their whole focus is really a kind of way of bypassing the world through their Gnostic, their Gnosis, their, you know, this is why John is in this, in the ending, he's referenced again Gnosis. Their idea is that through knowing they can bypass, really, material reality, so as to get to God. In other words, you can't have Christ in the flesh if you're a Gnostic, because that puts God within the material realm. So my point is, I don't think John is introducing, oh, at the end of the book, he's introducing something different from what he's already warned them about, but he's going, we must understand how idolatry might now simply be like it was for the Jews representative of sin. So idolatry is the marker of a Christian notion of sin. Uh, First of all, and this may sound strange if you haven't been through it before, was there an understanding, a correct understanding of the depth of the human problem prior to Christ? I think no. That's a very simple idea that is central to understanding the New Testament. That is, I don't think the Jews, I don't think the, their reading of the Old Testament, I don't think Paul, before he was a Christian, understood the depth of the problem of evil. And so Paul in the New Testament and John, they're going to give us a new diagnosis. It's sort of, you know, this is Jesus is the great physician, and he's brought a diagnosis of the human condition. It's not a departure, it's not a complete departure from the Jews of the Old Testament, but neither is it in complete continuity. Uh, So the Jewish diagnosis presumed that sin was such that being a good Jew and following the law, that is, there's there's sin and evil out there in the world, and what God is doing, he's redeeming Israel, and we're Israel, and that was enough to take care of the sin problem. That's all going to change up in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. 
Now, now we kind of add, need to add a footnote here because everybody may be shaking your head yes at this point and thinking, oh yeah, yeah, Augustine and Luther, that's what they're saying, right? That people have a guilty conscience, which the law and Judaism did not address, and now we see that that's our real problem, is the guilty conscience. No, that's, I think that's just wrong. <clears throat> that is, and it's not, I don't mean in any way to take away from the notion of personal sin, but what happens in both an Augustinian and a Lutheran, Calvinist, you know, Protestant, we could just stretch it out, understanding is that you have the whole idea of law pitted against grace and, you know, works against uh, faith, uh, and then the notion of salvation is that it's a complete departure from Judaism. Um, I, I think that it, there is personal salvation, but it's couched then within Judaism. So think here of Paul. When Paul talks about his life as a Jew, he's going to say you know, several things. One, that he was perfect, that he was within regard to the law, that he was zealous for the tradition of his ancestors. He's even, and, but then he's going to say he was the worst of sinners. But he was a blameless Jew. Paul did not, you know, on the road to Damascus was what Paul discovered, oh, now I see, I have actually got a bad conscience and I didn't realize it. That's not what's happening there. Um, and this is what, if you know something about the new perspective on Paul, that's what they're recognizing. Uh, E.P. Sanders doesn't quite get it. He said, oh yeah, Paul had a problem which he was not aware of as a Jew. And so Sanders makes the mistake that uh, in some way Judaism completely misses the problem. Well, no, that's not true either. In other words, uh, personal sin and salvation is part of the predicament that's addressed in the New Testament, but the extent of the problem is in some ways, we, we have to set it in the context of Judaism, that is a socio-cultural, religious, you know, all the, the things that accounts for Israel, to get at the seriousness of the problem of evil. N.T. Wright has described it, we need to approach the problem, and his point is that through these contrasting pairs, monotheism versus idolatry. But monotheism is changed up in Christ. In other words, monotheism now is understood as, you know, through the Trinity. And then also Torah-keeping versus immorality. So think here of the categories that John is even referencing in the last few verses. He says, the whole world lies within the power of the evil one. A Jewish way of getting this, at this would be just to describe the world as idolatrous. <clears throat> but John and Paul in the New Testament's point, it's no longer enough to keep Torah or simply to identify as a Jew. John says you must be born again. Uh, you must be recreated. And this is the implication of the, both the death and resurrection of Christ, right? The death then means, oh, this is really a serious problem. They never thought of the Messiah dying on the cross. 
And they thought of resurrection as happening at the end of history. So the Christian diagnosis and the Christian answer are a breadth of seriousness that what is happening in both you know, Galatians, Romans, and I think with John, they're giving us a rereading of the Old Testament scriptures in light of the hermeneutic of, of who Christ is. So it's not simply that Christianity shifts the problem to the personal problem of sin, but rather personal sin then has to be understood in light of the Jewish framework. Uh, this, the social, the cultural, the political, went with, you know, when they said idolatry versus monotheism, uh, that this is the entire identity of what it means to be Jewish. And it has to be taken into account, even at a global or cosmic scale. That's glimpsed a little bit in Israel scriptures, but not very clearly. So, this is right. He says, we must not collude with the relatively modern breakup of the problem of evil into natural evil and human sin. Nor must we continue to see salvation as a rescue away from the present world. That is, what John is doing, what Paul is doing, is saying sin and evil every kind of evil, social, political, natural, evil per se, those things are not disconnected, they're the same problem. And what's happening in Christ is not just, oh, saving souls from the world or saving people away from this world. What's happening is cosmic recreation. Uh, The evil world, we've talked about this in John, the cosmos, is a term that John uses a lot, but what he means, he uses the term in two ways. There's the cosmos, which is constituted by human beings, and then there's the reality that is the created reality of God. And he's going to use this language at the end because he's going to refer to God as being real, and idolatry is going to represent that which is not real, that which is amounts to nothing. So what John and the New Testament are describing is a salvation which works from within creation. That is, uh, it exposes the lie of the idolatrous world so as to redeem it. You know, don't, this is, I think people misread John here. When he, they talk, he talks about the evil of the world, yes, but remember he's talking about this evil in a very different way than he's talking about being born again in Christ. That is, the evil world is the one that the light is penetrating, that there is a cosmic salvation being worked out. And so he's going to give us some markers. He says, the Christian does not continue to sin because, and here's the phrase, tell me what this means. He that is begotten of God keeps him. Who's that? He that is born of God keeps him. He's going to use the phrase born again. That's the phrase here. But who's the born again one here? It's Christ, right? So he refers to both Christians and Christ as born again. 
So, but he was born, he who was born of God protects him, is the English Standard Version. Both Christ and the Christian are born of God. That is that, again, this kind of gets into our whole discussion of the faith of Christ. It's not just that we have faith in Christ, but Christ is the model that we participate in. And so, as John has told us, God's seed is in the Christian. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. If you're not born of God, this is, this is a kind of reverse way of talking from Paul. Paul will talk about that we have an incapacity of the will due to sin. John says, well, if you're born again, then you follow the commandments, the commandments of Christ. So the Abrahamic seed that John refers to, it does not point away from the world. It does not point away from the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Uh, But it involves the personal, the political, the cosmic. It's in the world that this recreation, this is where the gospel of John, the recreation and the epistle, I think, coincide. The redemption of Israel and her purposes has been accomplished in Christ. So, is this continuous with Jewish expectations? Yes, in part, except it's not what they thought. It's not working out. You know, the Israel, who's true Israel? Well, that's what Paul's having to explain. The Jews, you know, if you would ask them, did the Jews recognize what John is saying? Did they recognize what Paul is saying, that there is an inherent incapacity to keep the law? That's what their own scripture links to idolatry. And what the prophets continue. This is, uh, I'll, I'm going to go here in a minute to Acts, to Stephen, uh, Paul. Uh, they're going to talk about Judaism in terms of idolatry. You ever wonder why they killed Stephen? Well, it's there in the speech. And Paul is doing the same thing. They're going to link Jewish practices. Think here of Galatians. Galatians 4, 8 to 11. However, that, in other words, he's talking to people who were uh, Gentiles, who become Christians, who are about to become, they're, they're in danger of becoming Judaized. And Paul links the two things. That is their paganism and their temptation to slide back into Judaism. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those, I'm reading from Galatians 4, 8 to 11, to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back to weak and worthless elemental things, to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? I think that Paul is equating, and he does this in several places, as do the prophets. They're going to equate Jewish practices and idolatrous religion. Uh, here in this passage, they're being tempted you know, to go to back to what Paul calls the elemental principles. F.F. F. Bruce says, For all the differences between Judaism and paganism, both involve subjection to the same elemental forces. And this is basically Paul's argument in that all are unrighteous. Or that's why he's having to work so hard at this in Romans and Galatians, 
Because the Jews never thought of themselves as unrighteous or inca incapable of keeping the law. Uh, Stephen in Acts equates the religion of the Jews and he references Amos and Isaiah. And uh, this is Dunn's comment on Acts. Not to be missed, he says, is the implication that the whole sweep of Israel's time within the promised land itself was embraced within these two periods, Sinai and ex exile, of blatant apostasy. Let me read the Amos 5, or if somebody else has it, does somebody else have Amos 5, 25 to 27? That you can read. And while they're looking up that, somebody else look up Isaiah 66, 1 to 6. Amos 5 what? Amos 5, 25 to 27. Do you want me to read it that one? Yeah. Okay. Did you bring... To me, sacrifices and offerings during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel. You shall take up the what's that word? Grain offerings in mine. Okay, um, the grain offerings, your king and high in your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of the hosts. Uh, he it goes on you, that they, in other words he's describing that they took their images with them. They're still offering sacrifices, but uh, the did you read uh, he, in uh, woe to those who are at ease in Zion and those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria. Uh, he's saying, you know, it's almost like this could come right out of the New Testament. You think you're secure in being a Jew, but you're just idolatrous, and your offerings, your sacrifices, uh, they're they're uh, they're made into idolatrous sacrifices because you do not combine them with obedience. You do not, you know. Uh, at the end of this, he says that. Uh, uh, that the uh, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So what Amos is doing, what Stephen is doing in quoting this passage in Acts that gets him killed is saying, you people have always been idolatrous. It's in your own scriptures. And what you're doing now is idolatrous. And you could understand they might get a little, little peeked at him. And then Isaiah 66. Did somebody have that? I have it. Okay. Thus says the, says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you have built for me? And what is the place of my rest? And it just goes on. I made all these things. All these things that came into being. Uh... To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's who, you know, is coming into the temple. But he who kills an ox, that is a sacrifice, is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like the one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol. What are the? These are just the Jewish offerings. 
And Isaiah's saying, yeah, but it's, you might as well be offering swine's blood for all that it's worth. Uh, as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so I will choose their punishment and bring on them all that they dread. And they did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord. This is Stephen references Isaiah and says, Look, Amos, Isaiah, they are predicting what you have done to Christ. And they say, No, he didn't do that. And then they kill him. Um, The disobedience of the Jews is idolatrous. And that's, I think, the significance of Galatians, Romans, and the ending of John. The disobedience of Christians is idolatrous. Right? There's only two choices. You're either going to do idolatry, according to this understanding, or you're going to be a follower of Christ. There's really just black and white. There's evil, idolatrous, religion, or there's being uh, one who's obedient to Christ. And so the Jewish religion has not helped them in becoming righteous. And the tendency, now we really don't know, you know, some people think that the Gnosticism may in fact be uh, uh, itself in this instance in, you know, maybe we shouldn't even call it Gnosticism, but maybe the false teaching in Ephesus is itself mixed with a Judaizing tendency. Uh, Wright says of Paul on the road to Damascus, Paul was like a man who on the way to collect a prescribed medication studies the doctor's note and concludes from the recommended remedy that his illness must be far more serious than he supposed. The problem of evil runs through Israel itself. The problem of evil runs right through Paul, and Paul would have never suspected as much. Paul, and I believe in what he's doing in Romans, you know, seven, Romans five, he's describing himself as a typical Jew as no better than an idolater. And he's showing us, he's demonstrating how this has come about. What's the problem? You know, this is where Luther fails us and, and so much of New Testament uh, studies fail us. The law is not the problem. Rather, the law points to the problem. What's the problem? Sin and death. Why do we know that's the problem? Jews didn't know that was the problem. They thought the problem was idolatry. But the problem of sin is one that is inclusive then of everything sub, you know, oriented to death. And so in this sense, you know, if you, idolatry is a kind of inadequate description. If it's not recognized that idolatry is serving then as the marker of the evil of the world. And so the difference between the Christian and the idolater describes the contrast between those in Christ and those under the sway of the evil one. Little children, beware, you know, uh, you know, don't worship idols. Well, he's just re- uh, repeating what he's warned them about through the book. He gives us a threefold contrast. How do you know you're not a, an idolater? 
Number one is the sign of obedience. Number two is the reality of God. He's going to say the idol is unreal, God is real. Number three is the capacity of understanding. John has said throughout, John, uh, throughout the, the epistle, anyone born of God does not continue to sin. That is, you are enabled, you have the capacity for obedience. And so John, make, much like Paul, uses the marker of keeping the commandments. This is right out of the gospel, by the way, too, right? Uh, so both Paul and John indicated that the capacity to obey the commandment, you know, this John talks about this, or Jesus actually talks about this, uh, that he who abides in me, one who abides in Christ, is enabled to be obedient. Paul will talk about, you know, in Romans 7, an incapacity that is resolved in Romans 8. And we are enabled to be righteous. So by this, the children of the devil and the children of God are, are obvious. This is 1 John 3.10. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And the reason he does not continue in sin is because he abides in Christ. The passage here is he is kept by Christ, which is a real interesting phrase. Uh, that is that the only way to be enabled to do this is that you have the protector. You have the one who keeps you. Uh, John Stott says the devil does not touch the Christian because the son keeps him. And so, because the Son keeps him, the Christian does not persist in sin. Uh, Jesus says, And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Uh, the, you know, the gospel, My Father who has given to, uh, them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the, the, the Father's hand. The word that he uses for understanding is dionoia. Uh, it's, it's a, the word, I don't know if you hear it in there, but it's the capacity, the power for understanding. Uh, what he has given us is uh, uh, an understanding that Gnosticism, or the false teaching, does not give. Aside from his coming, he says he has come and there is understanding. And so being a Jew or being an idolatry or, or you know, having secret knowledge, uh, there is only one place where a depth of understanding is to be found. It's in Christ. Now, I'm saying all this, this all just sounds real ordinary, right? Well, of course we believe that. Well, wait a minute. You mean to say that we do not have access to proper understanding except in Christ? You understand, that's not the, the majority position among Christians. The majority position is we have access to an alternative understanding in and through a natural revelation that is given to all people. Well, I think that that's not what John's saying. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. The understanding is directly connected John says to the fact that God is true, and the word here is not aletheia, but it's uh, it, it is the word for real. 
uh, it's a, a similar word, alethino. And so it's in contrast to the idol, which is a lie or nothing. So remember, Jesus called himself the real bread, the real vine uh, in John 6. So God is the ultimate reality, the only real God as opposed to idols. And it is by being in his son, abiding in his son, that we are true to him. The word idol, then, actually, uh, Plato used the word just for what's not real. Uh, but maybe in this, in John, we can say these false teachers would turn their own mental images, the mind's eye, you know, we've talked about the metaphor of the mind as visual. They've created an idol, I think, in their Gnostic understanding. Now, I, I probably should stop there, but I think we create an idol. I think we've created an idol in modernity. Because modernity presumes everything over and against what John is saying. Modernity presumes, I think, therefore I am, and I can attain to a knowledge of God. Modernity presumes the right understanding begins with human thought. Modernity presumes a kind of access to immortality within my thinking. Modernity presumes an access to being through knowing. It just almost is a repetition of Gnosticism. So all good God substitutes are idols. I would is this too strong? Modernity is an idol. Modern Christian is an oxymoron. There is no such thing. You cannot hold to the the ideas of modernity and hold to the ideas of Christianity. If you think you can, you've made an idol of Christ. And that's the danger, of course, here, because there is no. And that's the danger of the false teachers. Now, this is why the, the, the false teaching here is even worse than Judaism in its failure to uh, understand who Christ is and the notion that they're going to incorporate Christianity into their false teaching does away with the answer that is given. I'm afraid we may have done the same thing. In becoming, you know, idolaters, Christian idolaters, we've done away with any hope that we might have. Let Christians once recognize who they are, what they have become, born of God, belonging to God, knowing God, in God, the possessors of eternal life in Christ. Any questions, comments? Let's read verse 18. Sharon, are you willing to read? Yes. 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Um, and, you know, we the, the vocabulary here is all very interesting. Does not keep on sinning, I think that's sort of obvious. That is, does not habitually sin, is not one who practices sin. John has already said anyone who says he does not sin is a liar. But on the other hand, anyone who continues in sin is not a Christian. 
So the the phrase here is a, a continuous action. Uh, but he is born of God. And this this is the idea that we're empowered by a change of uh, human subjectivity, a change of everything. And once you do that, you're protected from Satan. You're not born of the devil. The devil is not, you know, the the one who, uh, in some way, John will even distinguish between those who, the next verse, Logan, uh, can you read that one for us? Verse 19. 19. We know that we are from God, um, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So some people make something here that the Christians are from God, but in some way the world just lies in the power of the evil one. That is, the, the verb there is a different sort of verb. I think that the, whether, whether we want to load those verbs up very much, I think that certainly there is a, the idea that we're all being saved then, moving from darkness to light. We've all been in the position of lying in the power of the evil one. We've all been in the place of the idolater. What this letter is doing is warning us not to fall back into that. And then, uh, Alec, can you read verse 20? Yeah, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we may know the one who is true, and we are in the one who is true, in his Son Jesus Christ. This is the one, or this one is the true God and eternal life. couple problems here, but let me come to the, remind me that I said that if I don't come back to it. Um, first of all, the, did the Jews know who the true God is apart from Christ? Did they, did they have access to the truth of God apart from Christ? Or did they know God in a sense, that, in other words, they thought they knew God, but in fact their understanding is mistaken. Paul's argument, I think, is they, they have in some way, the, what the law does, it is a marker of the misorientation to God. If you do not know God in Christ, you know God is in some way connected to the law, but the way in which we know the law is bent by sin. So that our understanding of the law is always a perverse understanding, so that our understanding of God is always made perverse by sin. So, we know him who is true. We know him who, who is real, is the idea here. And I think, again, he's already contrasting the reality of God. Paul you know, says, the idol is nothing. Um, and then the, last, the problem is the last phrase. He is the true God. Who is the true God? The, the question here, and I, I don't know that I have a definitive answer, is this a statement of the deity of Christ at the end of this epistle in which they've questioned the deity of Christ? Some would take it in that way, and that would be my tendency, is to say here is the strongest affirmation of the deity of Christ. Now, if you don't like that, uh, you know, that the, some would say, well, this is saying that God 
is the true God that we know in Christ. But I think it's actually a stronger statement. And especially I think that because of what is being said about idolatry. You have Christ is the displacement of an idolatrous religion that's inclusive of Judaism. Right? Of a, of a, of a, a failed understanding that you have in Judaism. So I think it's, it's doing what the gospel is doing in the uh, I am statements. Here is an affirmation of the deity of Christ, which would certainly fit with the combating the false teacher's denial of that deity. And then this last phrase, uh, I have to credit, and I don't have the guy's book, but uh, somebody wrote an entire dissertation on the last phrase. I didn't agree with his conclusion. Uh, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. His conclusion was, oh, this changes up everything. Because the phrase is being used like the the phrase from Amos and Isaiah might be used, that he's actually addressing Jews and a Jewish problem. Maybe maybe it, it is a kind of Judaizing tendency, but I think that, uh, and, and certainly it's the idea of that problem that we read about in Amos and Isaiah and in Acts that Stephen is quoting, is now identified, idolatry is identified as the marker of a failed, uh, you know, religion. All right, any questions on 1 John 18, 21, 5, 18? Can you go where you just said, at the last verse, you're saying the person that you read, that this is specifically talking about Judaism. He's, he's concluding. He's concluding on the basis of this last verse. He's doing a rereading of the false teaching. Usually what's said about the false teachers is that it's a kind of Greek, you know, Gnostic, Christian, uh, you know, false teaching. He even goes so far as to date the book of the John and the epistle. He says they may have been written simultaneously. And then says they may have been written as early as 60 A.D. I, I don't know that, you know, but, but his point is an interesting point. And it's a, that is, he's saying that because of this ending, the false teaching must be more of the false teaching like you get in Galatia, of a Judaizing tendency. Nobody knows what the false teaching was, and it may be even that it's mixed with several things. You know, the, yes, yeah, it's there in the gospel too. I think he's already combating. I think it's the same situation he's combating in the gospel. He's already combating a proto-gnostic kind of false teaching. But I, but so I didn't agree with his idea that it was necessarily Jewish. But I did agree with the idea that the idolatry is the marker of ins of the outside. That was always the marker for the Jews, except for the problem became they themselves were outside. They were idolatrous, as described by the prophets. Well, I think you said it really simply and clearly when you're talking about Amos and sacrifice becomes idolatry when obedience is missing. And so we can all 
very fastly fall into that. Like, how often are we, like, trying to serve God, but we forget to be present, you know? And I think that's something all of us in this room, that's where we really fall into. That's a very easy trap, you know? We're all striving to do ministry and help people and whatever it may be. And then it's very easy to become so absorbed in that that we forget about our own circumstances and being present (coughs) with God and in the Word and in prayer. That in some way, if our religion... And, you know, this this all becomes, as as I say this to myself, that a religion devoid of a righteousness that is walked out in our lives that lets justice roll down like waters. He's talking about, Amos is talking about a social justice. That if we are not participants in bringing about God's justice, God's righteousness in the world, then he's saying all those bad things about that religion. The religion is useless. And of course, in the prophets, think here, I read the passage from Jeremiah earlier, that Jeremiah says, you know, the prophet says, I never asked for sacrifices. It almost sounds like the sacrifices are an accommodation on the part of God when you read Jeremiah and the prophets. Whether you whether that's the case, certainly the sacrifices then, or the law or ethnic Judaism, they're saying that's the thing. Now this all may sound distant, but it becomes close when we say, oh, well, I accepted Jesus into my heart. <coughs> yeah, but wait a minute, is that enough? Is that enough? Uh, I think that uh, we may be in the position of those being condemned if our Christianity is not such that we're walking out, being obedient, having the correct understanding, recognizing the evil, and being able to name it. Yeah. I'm sorry, that was... John is doing... I mean, that's not me, that's John, right? Uh, John says, don't pray the prayer. <laughs> That's what John says. <laughs> uh, well, if you're going to pray the prayer, you better walk the walk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a sense, that it, the, the, uh, it may sound like, a, uh, you know, that, I think that's the, the point of a, uh, a baptism, the Lord's Supper, uh, or the idea of an embodied Christianity. That where those things get ten, they are left out are precisely in a Christianity like a Lutheran or Augustinian notion. Oh, what Christianity is about is human beings have a troubled conscience, and now we don't. I'm saved, you're saved, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all going to heaven when we die. Hallelujah, by and by. Okay. Somebody should write a song. And so that that it is a kind of sad predicament that we've missed the reality that this ser- in other words, Paul's mistake before he's a Christian is sometimes our mistake as Christians. Paul's mistake before he was a Christian, oh the problem's not so bad. 
what he realizes with the death, you know, you can just go through the death, the resurrection, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Oh, wow, this problem redefined in the light of the death of Christ means here is how serious this is. And here is the focus of the problem. And in that sense, idolatry doesn't quite get it. Because sin and death then aren't linked. But then so too with the resurrection. Paul was thinking, you know, like any good Jew, that Israel would be redeemed, would become, you know, the throne of David restored. And here's this strange thing happening that, yeah, Israel's redeemed in the true Israelite, the faithful Israelite, Jesus. And that changes everything up. So he's, what he's doing is giving us a rereading of his own understanding out of the Old Testament, beginning with Genesis. You've got to redo the whole thing. Now, do you think that people who this letter went to when they, when they finished this letter at the very end, just summarizing it, they read this whole letter, they come to the last verse, the last part of the letter, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Um, and you're, you're thinking that they're, when they read that, they'll know that they're, they're, they're understanding that the idols are the things that, that in the rest of the book he's talking about. What is the summary? I'm just trying to go back and remember. Yes, that the, uh, the idols are uh, the false teaching that would make an idol of gnosis. That, that, that becomes more important than the food. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, in other words, not, yes, I think that's it. That he's just referencing, I don't think he's introducing something new. He's not saying, oh, well, uh, oh, and by the way, keep yourselves from idols. And he does spend a lot of time in the book talking about God's love and that they need to be in love and, and whatever it was, was keeping them from, from experiencing it. Yeah, we talked about that, that, that once you go the Gnosis route, this was the equation that John makes that I brought out and is a kind of odd parallel that you cannot insist upon knowing and love your brother. That's what he's saying. Believing in Christ enables the love of the brother. Insistence upon this privatized, visualized, ecstatic, otherworldly, disincarnate knowing stands over and against agape love. And so it's not a thing that, it's not a juxtaposition we might have leaped at. Oh, you mean if I'm caught up in this false teaching, I can't love my brother? I think that's what John's saying. You can't do both. If you're going to do the whole Gnostic thing, then you can't, it's inward, it's privatized, and I mean, the, I hope that this is, you know, you're sort of hearing evangelical Christianity today, in as much as it's Gnostic, incapacitates love, because it's disembodied. Or anything, I mean, any, any, that's, and I'm not, I'm not picking on anything, I just think that's the human condition. Gnosticism is just our tendency. That's what we would like to do. 
is, uh, you know, if I could get rid of you people, I'd be okay. It's people that are the problem. I'm okay. But what we, what in Christ we have to do is, no, we have to, that our salvation literally is interdependent upon one another. My salvation is dependent upon my relationship with you all. And salvation here, we've changed up the meaning, remember. Salvation is not something we're waiting for. Salvation is something we're practicing. And that's the whole point of love, that if you obey my commandments, you know, love your brother, uh, you know, uh, love your neighbor as yourself, uh, and love the Lord your God with all your heart. So how can you love God whom you've not seen if you cannot love your brother whom you have seen? John says that's an impossibility. The access to the love of God is only through the neighbor, the embodied reality of Christ, or the body of the, the church. As we've done this, I, I've, I've drawn a lot of parallels personally, and I think I, I keep bringing them out, between John and Paul. They're, they're, they're using very different vocabulary, and very, but it, I think it, the two ideas, they resonate so thoroughly with one another. Once you said John and Paul, of course, you've said the New Testament. And do you mean the disembodiment part? Like that's what Paul's doing too? Well, yeah, now maybe I've spoken too quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, the, in that, I think the false teaching that Paul is facing um is, is different. And I think that what he's writing uh, against uh, with, you know, what, what he's having to accomplish, in, in that sense it is, he's doing something different than John. In that, I think even in the gospel and in the epistles, John is already, John, I take John to be written after 70 AD. And the problem is a very different problem. The problem is not, uh, am I Jewish? And if I'm Jewish, then how do I be a Christian? No, the temple's gone. And so the problem is, what happened to Judaism? And John's saying, you know, that's that's why I think there is that unusual beginning in the gospel. But Paul is in the midst of uh, a, a situation in which the temple is still there, the priesthood, the sacrifices. And so people, are tend- their tendency is to fall back into that Judaizing understanding and I think that is very different than a full-blown Gnostic understanding beyond that I think there's a lot of the the idea of um, the the seriousness of the problem reinterpreted in and through Christ uh, the you know other things that, that I think there's a lot of